Thanks for being here on this holiday weekend. Don't worry, uh, I know some of us are still in turkey coma, so if you drift off a little bit, grace abounds, okay? It does. Uh, welcome to Hope Brooklyn. My name is Russell, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if this is your first time, thanks for being here. We know that there's lots of other places you could be on a Sunday morning. We know in New York City, time is cherished, and we're really honored that you would spend it with us. We are a church plant. We are a brand new church, and we are in our preview season of existence. Uh, some people have been asking, what does that mean to be in the preview season? And we went over this a little extensively last Sunday, so we're gonna do it briefly here. The preview season, as it relates to you guys, we're pulling a page out of Jesus's playbook, which I think we're gonna put up uh, right here. This is Jesus's method. This was his vision of ministry. And during this preview season, we're setting our culture. Culture is one of those things kind of like grief, right? Grief, you, you can't get through it other than just by going through it. It takes time. Culture takes time to establish. And this is the culture we want to be about. This is our vision. We are gonna be a community of crowds and disciples. Everywhere you see Jesus go in the New Testament, he's surrounded by those who call him Lord and those who aren't sure what they wanna call him yet. You know, they're still feeling him out. Everywhere. Tim Keller puts it brilliantly. He goes, Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the moralistic and the religious people. But by and large, in the church in America, most of the time, churches are full of moralistic Christians while the irreligious keep their distance. And he goes, if that's the case, then we can only make one conclusion. Somehow, the teaching of the churches today is not the same teaching that Jesus had. We want to be a community where no matter where you are on the spiritual spectrum, you find warmth, you find comfort, you find challenge, you find offense, but you find something that seems so utterly true, you can't help but coming back to it. So we're going to be a community of crowds and disciples. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to be a community of the story. The story. We're not going to be a church of principles. Principles will be distilled, but they're going to be distilled through telling the story, the gospel, the good news report over and over and over. And we're going to do that by eating together. Food is central. Come on, I can get an amen for that one right there. Yeah, David Santos loves it. <laughs> Food is central to, to what Jesus was about. He called 12 guys and they went and they did life together. They ate together. He constantly got a bad reputation for who he ate with. Hopefully the same is said of us. So that's what we're about. This is our vision. This is who we are. This is what we're gonna be about. And this is what we're trying to allow the culture to establish and take hold in this preview season, over these next couple months. And that being the case, so what's expected of you then? Determine whether a church plant is right for you. It's not for everyone, I get that. And if it is, grab hold of the vision. Make it yours. Um, join a table. Tables are like our small groups. They're dinner parties in people's homes throughout Brooklyn. Or host a table. When we get through this holiday season and we come back in January, we're going to host um, table informational sort of sessions. So anyone who's interested on what it looks like to, to host a table, to host a dinner in your home. Our vision, friends, is to have a table in every single neighborhood where we have someone attending Hope Brooklyn from. And we know we can't do that all at once, but that's our ultimate vision. So join a table, host a table, join a team, and invite people to Hope Brooklyn.
Invite people to the table. Now, if you're thinking, all right, that's cool, but who do I invite? We have this little spectrum, and we, we kind of shortened it. And I got this from Tim Keller, um, who's just a brilliant practitioner of the gospel. And on the two opposite ends of those green rectangles, there are red uh, sort of arrows. And on one end are those who are Christians, those who are compelled by the story of Jesus, um, but are pretty sure that they're right in all their points of doctrine, right? Are not open to a conversation necessarily. They probably won't be the best people for our church because in this community, there's no question off the table. There's no, if you're thinking it, we want you to feel comfortable asking it. And on the other end of the spectrum, there are those who would probably call themselves not Christians who similarly are sure they're right, are not open for any sort of conversation for the same reasons they probably, this wouldn't be a conducive community for them. But if you have friends or networks or colleagues who are either Christians or aren't, maybe they used to be, maybe um, they don't even know the gospel, but are open to a conversation, who are seeking something, who, who feel this sense of like, we need some form of truth. This might be the right community for them. So that's basically during this preview season, this is the expectations on you guys. Grab this vision and make it your own. And this is also really special, guys, because this is our first Advent season and we get to celebrate together. Hey, give it up for that. Come on. It's our first Advent season. I love Christmas. Anyone else love Christmas in the room? Yes. Love Christmas. Um, Advent is the season in the church's history where we celebrate the coming of Jesus. It comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means the coming, which was derived from the Greek word parousia, meaning presence. And I think the Greek gets at the idea better because what you need to do is um, look at the Greek's conception of time. The Greeks had two ways that they talked about time, chronos and kairos. Chronos is where we get the word chronological. It is linear time. It's quantifiable time. Uh, kairos is time of weight. So the best way I could sort of illustrate this, picture a, a parent spending time with their child, right? And one parent spends two hours with his child, but he's on his phone the whole time, and they're just kind of in the same room. The second parent spends 30 minutes with his child. But for those 30 minutes, he's asking his child questions. He's playing with his child. He's on the floor with his child. Who spent more time with their child? The first example is Kronos, two hours, it was longer. But the second example is Kairos. It was more presence there. God is a Kairos God. God is a Kairos God. And in Advent, in the season of Advent, we celebrate um, the weightiest time the world has ever known. We celebrate the moment in world history where God is most present, where God is most lofty, most weighty. And from the fourth century onward, what we see in Advent is a celebration of this. When God, the author, wrote himself into the story. Advent is represented by light, candles. Um, there are four candles representing the four Sundays before Christmas, and then the red candle in the center is the Christ candle, 
which will be lit on Christmas Day. And each candle, it, it comes from the passage in Isaiah where it says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those dwelling in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. And each candle represents a theme from the story of Christ's coming. And each week we'll light another candle as the light slowly grows, as the presence deepens. And so today is the candle of hope. The candle of hope. Now, you might be thinking, if this is a season where we celebrate Jesus' birth, it was an interesting choice of text, was it not? If we're celebrating in this season Jesus' birth, why do we start by talking about his death? Well, I think the reason being is because we need to answer the question, if today is about hope, what kind of hope are we talking about? What kind of hope is the Christian story all about? So this passage that Kelly read comes from Paul. Paul is a church planter. He's probably the first church planter in in Christian history. And he's writing to a church in the bustling city of Corinth in Greece. And he lays out in this letter um, lots of things. He addresses issues going on in their community. But then at the very end, we get to our part. And he says, what was most important that I received I passed on to you, that Christ was crucified for our sins and according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised from the dead. Paul is saying, this is the gospel, this is our hope, this is most important. And he doesn't talk about Jesus' birth. As if to say, for the church, for Christians, to remove the story of Jesus' birth from his account of his life does not destroy our witness. Every pseudo-Messiah is born. Not every pseudo-Messiah is raised from the dead. Or as N.T. Wright says, God's glory is revealed not in the manger, but on the cross. And when we recognize that, we can celebrate the manger appropriately. It's as if like there was this guy and, and he goes, hey, follow me. And we're like, cool, why? I have a driver's license. We'd be like, you and like millions of other people, you know? But if someone says, follow me, why? Because I defeated death. All right, you got to claim, I'm listening. If Jesus was not resurrected from the dead in a transformed body, our faith is futile, Paul says. The entire story is undone. Everything hinges, all our hope as Christians hinges on this claim that Christ was raised from the dead. Therefore, it is his resurrection and not his birth where our hope is anchored. We are reading the story of God from Genesis to Revelation from our particular page therein, the page of new creation. New creation inaugurated, transforming the old. We are, friends, resurrection people. For anyone who's been baptized into the name of Jesus, we are resurrection people living in the overlap of the ages. And therefore, we can only celebrate the birth of Jesus if we do so from this side of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 through 4, what I just uh, quoted when Paul goes, what I received, I passed on as of first importance. That Christ was crucified for our sins, And according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised. That's one of the earliest creeds 
we have evidence of. And a creed is a statement of beliefs, right? It's a statement of things we affirm. One of the earliest creeds, which is actually in our canon, is Paul saying, this is what we affirm. He was crucified, he was buried, and he was resurrected. These are what the most important elements to the story are. And so what I want to do on this first Sunday of Advent, the Sunday of hope, is talk about what is so radical about our hope. What is so radical about the Christian understanding of resurrection? And the reason I want to talk about this is because I want to disprove something. Um, it's very easy for moderns, such as ourselves, Western modernized people, to hold this, this belief that somehow, because the ancient people, people of the first century, didn't have as much information about the mechanics of nature, about the mechanics of the world, that because they were uh, more of a superstitious people, it was easier for them to believe in resurrection than it is for us. I want to disprove that today. I want to say that's absolutely false. I, in fact, want to say that it was harder for people of the first century to believe this claim, to make up this claim, that it would have been a more astonishing lie to say that this guy was raised from the dead than it would have been for us. We have 2,000 years of church history. We have 2,000 years of looking at churches on every continent, rich and poor, every nation, people saying, this is true, this is true, this guy was raised from the dead. The first apostles did not have that. And I wanna to show today that their cultural context, it was not an easy you know, sliding into this belief. It was difficult. So what I wanna do, I want to talk about our hope in the resurrection to answer what is so radical about it. And we're getting a little historical today, guys. All right, we're gonna go a little historical. So some of the historical beliefs on death and the, did I hear a yeah? Like a, <laughs> I heard like a, yay, <laughs> history. <laughs> so some of these historical beliefs on death and resurrection. The ancient Greeks, and I get, oh, before I do that, the best way to sort of understand this is kind of like modern day Brooklyn, right? Brooklyn is made up by lots of different people, lots of different cultural groups, but think of the Hasidic Jewish population. They have their own understanding of what life is about, their own worldview, their own cultural values, their own belief of death and resurrection. And sort of broaden that circle a bit, and you have wider Brooklyn, which has its own values, its own um, beliefs in death and resurrection as well. You have the same thing going on in the first century. You have the Jewish people, the Jewish culture, within a wider Greco-Roman culture, all right? The ancient Greeks, Homer, their belief was that death is final. When you die, it's over, it all goes back into the, the box, sorry. And then, as, as, um, as the Greek culture evolves a bit, you have Plato comes onto the scene. And Platonism develops. And, and the easiest way to capture Platonism is this. Flesh is bad, spirit is good. That the material world is evil and corrupt. That our passions um, are, are wrong. But that inside each one of our bodies is a pure soul, a pure spirit. 
that upon death, the soul sheds our bodies and enters this uh, disembodied spiritual state, this disembodied spiritual pie in the sky. And in the first century, when Jesus lived, um, when the New Testament was written, Platonism was kind of like um, the high society view. It was the in vogue view, you know? Kind of like in our day, it's really cool to be spiritually seeking. Like some guys like, dude, I did a, a 30-day pilgrimage in the Saharan desert to find myself. I'm like, yeah, you and 400 other people, man. Be original. I wouldn't say that. I would never say that. <laughs> but it's the, the, the high society view of today, of the 21st century, is to be spiritually seeking. In the first century, it was to be a Platonist. You had different schools of thought who all held some form of this belief. That when you died, your spirit shed your body and went into a disembodied spiritual state. Now, notice how many modern Christians' belief is really a Platonist belief in the afterlife, right? Ask a modern Christian, what happens when we die? We go to heaven. Well, what does that mean? And if you press them, generally, it takes the form of, well, our soul sort of sheds our body and, and goes to be in the spiritual world with God. That's a Platonist view. And friends, that's not the New Testament claim. The New Testament belief in resurrection, the New Testament hope in resurrection is so much more incredible. It's so much more affirming of creation. But in the Greco-Roman context of the first century, there was no belief whatsoever that when you died, somehow you would be resurrected. That was considered a vulgar belief, uncouth, uncool. Well, then you look at Judaism in the first century. Judaism, um, Jesus, Paul, all the first Christians were Jews. The 12 disciples, they were all Jews. And, and uh, for our purposes, the best way to sort of differentiate is you had two sort of chief views represented by the Sadducees and the Pharisees. You might have seen these characters pop up in the gospel accounts. The Sadducees were rich Jews and all their friends were Romans. Therefore, um, their views on death and resurrection were Platonist views. They, they ran with their circles, right? They ran with their crowds. So for them to stay with the, the high society, they said there was no resurrection of the dead. But the Pharisees, who were kind of a step below that, they were your scribes, they were your lawyers, they were your teachers of, of Judaism. The Pharisees said there was a resurrection. They affirmed a resurrection of the body. And it's important to point out, not a resuscitation, a resurrection. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, you ever wondered why Jesus had to stay in the tomb for three days, right? Why three? Well, cultural belief held that after three days, a body was definitely dead. It was dead, irrevocably dead, no coming back. But before then, the spirit was still in the body. So it could be resuscitated. But if it was resuscitated, it was part of the old world. After three days, if it came back to life, 
That's something new. That's resurrection. It's part of the new world. And so the Pharisees affirmed that there would be a resurrection of the body. But when that happens, that means God has definitively stepped into time. He's definitively stepped onto the stage, onto earth, and he has rendered the glorious transformation. Or in Judaism, it's called the tikkum alam. The tikkum alam, which means the repair of the world. Do you know that? We're standing in heaven right now. What we await is not death where we um, become disembodied spirits in some spiritual realm. We await Jesus' return here. Earth is our home. We await heaven coming back, which means, contrary to many other religions, Christianity is one of the few that affirms the body. We affirm bodies. We affirm the passions of the body. All the desires that make us human, really human, desires for sex and food, jealousy, are good. They were created to be good. Now, of course, they can go wayward, and they do. But our belief is not that there's some pure soul trapped in the body, and the body's bad. Our belief that it was all created to be good. That when God created man and woman and said, let there be and molded them, you can't separate the spirit from the body or the body from the spirit. It's all one and it's all good. And it all will be restored. It'll be renewed. And so the Pharisees held this belief that there would be a resurrection of the body. Resurrection means bodies, but it's reserved for the last day. There is no hint in any Jewish writings, any Jewish tradition, that somehow God would resurrect one person ahead of all the rest. The Jewish belief in resurrection is that when it happens, the end of the world has come. God has stepped in and he's resurrected all and he sends the unrighteous away and the righteous he draws to himself. There's no hint that it's going to be a two-part resurrection, that one person will be resurrected before all the rest. And for Paul to list who saw the resurrected body of Jesus with marks of his death, but in a transformed materiality, is so out of left field. It's so out of left field. There's nothing in his Jewish culture, nothing in his Jewish tradition, and nothing in the wider Greco-Roman context that would have lent itself to that unless it happened. No one would have made this claim in the first century. It would have been vulgar. It would have been unpopular by everyone's accounts, by the Jewish accounts, whether you're a Sadducee, can you say there is no resurrection, by the Pharisees' accounts, who say the resurrection is of everyone on the last day. But for the first Christians, you have them saying, well, actually, God already raised one person back from the dead, and he's, he's got a body. And it's, it's kind of like a weird body because it obeys and disobeys the laws of nature. You remember those stories after Jesus is raised from the dead? Doors are locked, but he suddenly appears in the room, but he eats. 
So he's still eating, which I love, you know, which is why we always eat together. He's still eating, but he passes through, through doors. Or like, there's this one story where he's on the road with two disciples after he's raised from the dead. On the, uh, it's the road to Emmaus. And the two disciples don't recognize him until he breaks the bread. When he broke the bread, then their eyes are open and they recognize that this is the resurrected Jesus. So this is, it's a transformed body, but it's a resurrected body. Moreover, when Paul lists all the people who the resurrected Jesus showed himself to, that adheres to the Jewish understanding that every claim, every witness must be confirmed by two or three witnesses. In this case, it's like 580 or something like that. You got Cephas, who is Peter. You have James. You have the 12 disciples. You have 500 others, Paul says, of whom some have already died, but many are still alive. You can check with them. And then James, and then last of all, myself. Like, even, even if, you know, the historians in the room who uh, know that there's always been sort of this ancient pagan myth of the dying God, the dying and rising God, it still always remained this abstract myth. No religion ever said, yes, that's true, and now I'm going to put a historical figure to that myth. That dying and rising God you talked about, his name is Jesus of Nazareth. There was nothing in the worldview of the first century that would have made this claim of someone coming out of the grave believable. No one would have made up this lie if in fact it was a lie, unless it's true. And our hope as Christians is absolutely anchored to this one historical claim that God who was who took the form of human likeness was killed and was definitely dead because he was in the tomb for three days wasn't resuscitation he was dead and God raised him to life the first fruits of the new creation what is so important about this hope well, what we see are the first Christians who were all Jews taking this claim of a resurrected Jesus now and placing it in the absolute center of their identity and their worldview. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, Paul says, our proclamation, proclamation is in vain and your faith is futile. Nothing else matters. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified that he raised Christ. If Christ is not raised today, nothing else matters. Um, we have interesting uh, uh, witness, we have interesting observation from a, a pagan doctor named Galen, who was around in the first century. He was a Roman in the first, second century. And we only have a couple sentences of his observations of the first Christians. And you know what he says about them? He makes two points. He's not a Christian himself. He makes two points about the first Christians. One, interesting, interestingly enough, he notes that they have a remarkable sexual restraint, which was very countercultural for the Greco-Roman world of their day. 
They have a remarkable sexual restraint. And two, they have an unbelievable view on the resurrection of the dead and some guy named Jesus. The two things, and for our purposes, the the central hope of what it means to be a Christian is that God has raised Jesus of Nazareth 1,970 years ago. And therefore, he's the first fruits of the new creation. Which means, during this season of Advent, we celebrate Christ's coming to the world. But in his resurrection, we celebrate the advent of new creation. Or as N.T. Wright says, to put it at its most basic, the resurrection of Jesus offers itself not as an odd event within the world as it is, but as the utterly characteristic, prototypical, which means the first and foundational event within the world as it has begun to be. It is not an absurd event within the old world, but the symbol and starting point of the new world. The claim advanced in Christianity is of that magnitude. Jesus of Nazareth ushers in not simply a new religious possibility, not simply a new ethic or a new way of salvation, but a new creation, a new materiality, a restored and renewed body. That is what we affirm. Or I love how, as G.K. Chesterton says it, um, on the third day, God walked again in the garden, in the cool, not of the evening, but of the dawn. And what he means by that is in Genesis 1, uh, after Adam and Eve fell, we're told that God is walking in the cool of the evening. And he comes to Adam and Eve and finds that they rebelled. Well, after the third day, when Jesus is resurrected, God is walking in the garden once again, but it's no longer in the evening. Light has come. It's of the dawn of the new day. New creation has dawned and has taken hold of this world and is transforming it through who? Us. Through his community, through those baptized into the name of the resurrected one. And now resurrection has become a two-part drama. It's become a two-part drama. God has raised Jesus. We await the rest of the resurrection. And because the new age has begun, we join Jesus in his work. Any Christian, any church that says, you become a Christian so as to go to heaven, you become a Christian so as to wait for something one day, is off base. We become a Christian because the new age has dawned now. We are the only ones, that's not true, but we are important ones who work for the restoration of creation. That's why we run to injustice and decry it. That's why we, that's why we build hospitals and schools and take care of the broken and the marginalized because this is our home. Christ is returning. We gotta get it ready for it. In the resurrection, basically what we're saying is God can be trusted. He raised Jesus, he'll raise us too. Our hope is in a reality that makes us and the world uncomfortable. I love this quote also by N.T. Wright. He goes, that is precisely why it is so important, 
so disturbing, so life and death. We could cope, the world could cope with a Jesus who ultimately remains a wonderful idea, a great teacher, a moral exemplar inside his disciples' minds and hearts. But the world cannot cope with a Jesus who comes out of the tomb, who inaugurates God's new creation right in the middle of the old one. It's life and death. The status quo is undone. You have two options, bow to him or don't. Luckily, he's a very patient and gracious king. Oh my gosh, is he patient and gracious. But those are the two options left for us. He's not just a great teacher. He's not a moral exemplar. He's none of those things. He's the firstborn of the resurrection. He's the one who's been raised from the dead. And consequently, we have two choices, bow to him or don't. Advent. Advent is new creations, celebration of the chapter a while back when God burst onto the scene of the old world. It is the staggering miracle of God's plan for redemption. There is, in fact, hope. He raised Jesus, he'll raise us too. Um, I love the story, and I'm gonna invite the worship team back up. We're gonna end with this. There's a, a wonderful missionary named Leslie Newbigin, and he was asked one time, are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? And what they meant was, do you think the world is getting better or do you think it's getting worse? Are you an optimist or a pessimist? And he goes, neither. Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. What he means is that our hope as Christians is not in the world getting better. Our hope is not in the world getting worse. Our hope is in a brand new historical fact. Our hope is in a new world that has come and is transforming the first one. Fully, fully in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are able to look at his arrival and celebrate it as it is meant to be celebrated. It is from this place that we remember and celebrate the appearance of Jesus. And therefore, we're able to say, as Paul said, as the first church in Corinth said, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again.